This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. In the last episode, I had been talking about Gandhi, his last days. He had been calling for peace between Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs. It seemed as though peace would never be restored. But the reality is that peace and not riots and murders and mayhem was the normal state of affairs. So much so that in the holy book of the Sikhs, we will find uh, a number of verses from a Muslim Sufi saint, Baba Farid. This is the story I want to tell you today. How did a number of verses from a Muslim saint, Baba Farid, find its way into the holy book of the Sikhs, Guru Granth Sahib? How do we make sense of such an anomaly? How do we respond to realities like this? Listening, history chatter, Sufi verses in the holy book for the Sikhs. Guru Granth Sahib was compiled by Guru Arjan in 1604 AD, that is the very early 17th century. They passed uh, a few centuries, in other words, between the death of Farid and the entry of his verses in the Sikh scripture. Now that has made for several interesting questions about the origin and afterlife of Baba Farid and his words, as those verses were called Farid Bani. Farid was born in Multan in modern Pakistan, but soon shifted to Delhi, where he received spiritual training from Bakhtiar Kaki. The latter was the spiritual guide of Sultan Iltutmish, who had succeeded Qutbuddin Aibok as the Sultan of Delhi. Incidentally, whether or not the famous Qutb Minar in Delhi is named after Bakhtiar Kaki still remains a matter of lively debate. If an influential school of opinion says it was named after him, Another says it is named after Sultan Qutbuddin Aibok, who had commissioned the monument but died soon after the constructions started. Farid, the Sufi saint, gained a reputation as an austere and strict disciplinarian. He spent some years in Hansi, in Haryana of today, and after the death of Bakhtiar Kaki, sometime between 1235 and 1238, shifted his base to Ayodhan near Multan. The place is now called Pak Pattan and falls in current Pakistan. There is in fact a wonderful account uh, by Professor Richard Eaton on the shrine of Baba Farid and its contemporary lives. Later accounts, that is surviving and verifiable accounts, recall Farid as a strict and austere Sufi saints. When I say later accounts, I refer primarily to memoirs which were composed after his death. So um, he was 
considered and worshipped and revered as an austere Sufi saint so much that his immediate family had to suffer extreme poverty. He would practice the impossibly hard Sufi observance of chila e makus or the 40-night vigil. It involved suspending his body upside down in a wall. In a veil, I'm sorry. His feet tied by a rope to the wooden support at the top. Ironically enough, the shrine built around his tomb at Pagpatan soon assumed a much larger profile and its hereditary custodians enjoyed great wealth and influence. During the Mughal period in particular, there had emerged a welter of hagiographic literature celebrating Farid's miraculous powers. These legends soon consolidated his reputation as one of the greatest Sufi saints of Punjab and indeed of the subcontinent. By then, Farid had been dead for nearly two centuries. The fame of Farid shot up exponentially a couple of centuries after his death. The difference between the historical Farid and his image as a miracle worker two centuries after his death should be kept in mind. This is a critical point. Aligarh professor K.A. Nizami published a brief biography of Farid in 1955. One of the questions he tried to examine there is whether Farid himself composed the Granth Sahib verses attributed to him. Nizami did not dispute that Farid had a soft corner for verses, but regretted that there was no contemporary reference of Farid living so many verses. Nizami wrote that many later words were used and that Farid himself did not refer to his poet self as Farid but Masood. Farid, in other words, used a different pain name when he wrote poems. Nizami concluded that the shlokas were probably composed by a descendant of Farid called Sheikh Ibrahim, who had been a contemporary and friend of Guru Nanak. Professor Christopher Shekel has in a more recent paper shown that Nizami's perspective may have been influenced by a pre-modern or roughly 18th and 19th century Sikh approach to Farid Bani. Before that, there was little attempt to asking whether or not Farid composed the shlokas attributed to him. Since then, however, there was a tendency to show that somehow Guru Nanak himself discovered them and reinterpreted them within a largely Sikh worldview, as though the merit of the Farid Bani depends less on their own, but more on their discovery and retention by the Sikh gurus. This is, of course, a simplification of a more complex point and presented only as a common sense illustration. And it intends no offense, of course, to religious sentiments, whether uh, that of the Sikhs or of the Muslims. But the point is that the significance of the shlokas does not depend entirely on whether or not Farid himself wrote them all. There are two other related concerns. One, 
The verses are quite small in size. They cover about six or seven pages out of uh, a total 1400 uh, or 30 printed pages of the Adi Granth. 1430 but only six or seven pages out of those contain these verses. Two, the themes addressed are not uniform and their diversity prevents attempts to seek out doctrinal clarity or consistency. The subjects broadly include the need for divine love, self-purification, penitence and spiritual progress, the ephemeral nature of human existence and so on. They seemed, to Professor Nizami, gushes of a heart overflowing with uh, divine emotions. And yet they emphasized the ascetic aspect of spiritual discipline. This seemed to him, in other words, some kind of an aberration. Yet the significance of Farid Bani in the Adi Granth cannot be underestimated. They are the only clearly defined example of the contribution of an unambiguously Muslim saint poet to Sikh scriptures. Let me repeat, these are the only clearly defined example of the contribution of an unambiguously Muslim saint poet to Sikh scriptures. They are also a rare bunch of vernacular verses assigned to an early Sufi saint. Persian at the time used to be the preferred language of Sufi expression and Sufi record. Farid had been recognized by more recent scholars as possibly the greatest example of vernacularization of Sufism in the subcontinent. He was probably the first major Sufi saint to be born in the subcontinent. And his teaching, so far as evidence survives, was largely conducted in a vernacular language. These dohas can be read to that extent as traces of how the Sufi messages were translated into the vernacular world of the subcontinent. Later, whether or not the historical Farid wrote them lost its status as the principal concern. What messages they seek to convey became a more pressing concern and how the later scholars came to read them. More contemporary scholars such as Christopher Shekel emphasized the vernacular element in these shlokas. Guru Nanak generally used a language which Shwekal called a mixture of Punjabi with Western Hindi-based Sant Bhasha. So did the other Bhagats, whose teaching is included in Adi Granth. The language of Farid Bani verses, on the other hand, uses features associated with the language or dialect of Southwestern Punjab. That dialect used to be called Multani and is now called Saraiki in Pakistan. Few scholars have worked with Saraiki material with more distinction than Professor Shekel. Unlike Professor Nizami, Shekel believes that there is a clear theme running through the Farid Bani. 
it is that death is inevitable and can strike any time and it is necessary for that reason to turn away from worldly pleasures and to cultivating spiritual discipline the style too is different while nanak could take recourse to long verses in order to hold a whole discourse farid preached in dohas the dohas are made of two rhyming verses each divided into half verses of three or four words at most as a form it cannot hold a long discourse it has to communicate only in condensed images or succinct messages as shackle writes and i quote it would be inappropriate to expect them to provide a systematic presentation of sufi ideas although they individually reflect the well-known sufi teachings whose goal is to foster a love and awareness of god through turning away from the attractions of this world unquote the contents of the farid bani are said to be consistent with what is known about the chishti saint farid from early persian sources but shakal agrees with nizami that some of the verses were probably written during the 16th century well after farid's death possibly by an admirer or many the discovery of a manuscript in the chishti center of khuldabad in the deccan offers new evidence of farid's dohas circulating in the 14th century too it offers some credence to the possibility that farid's teaching circulated in the subcontinent well before nanak discovered them or later persian or sikh scholars lent them more grandeur within the adi granth farid bani forms part of a larger section called bhagat bani which furnishes teachings from saints other than sikh gurus there is no clarity yet as to which sikh guru collected these verses it may be nanak but it may as well be amardas but it is almost certain that guru arjan was responsible for the final placement of the farid bani within the adi granth shackle concludes with a remarkable insight he shows that the question of whether or not farid bani were all written by farid or his descendant sheikh ibrahim is a consequence of an impulse to privilege guru nanak as the last word if it could be shown that the farid bani was composed by a contemporary of nanak it appears to reduce the greatness of farid to some extent if on the other hand it may be shown that at least some of the verses attributed to farid did indeed predate this sheikh ibrahim it may be an advance towards restoring to baba farid at least part authorship of the verses attributed to him the issue at stake here is what or how or how much of farid bani circulated in the subcontinent before they were compiled in the adi granth instructive here is the point that before the so called pre modern sikh scholarship there was no attempt even by sikh scholars or commentators 
to ask whether or not the Farid Bani was indeed composed by Farid. They were accepted as Jarmain or essential to the Granth as other Bhagat Banis. In that sense, the surprise that Farid Bani is found within the scripture, the Sikh scripture, is itself a somewhat later phenomenon. There was a time, in other words, when it did not raise any surprise whatsoever and was read or approached as integral to the main body of the Sikh scripture. It is time, it seems, for all of us to change the question once again. What we need to ask is how the early Sikh gurus did not find anything unusual at all to include the Dohas of a Muslim saint within a body of Sikh teaching. What happened later that it became necessary to get worried about indisputable authorship or authorities? In this day and age of epidemic, perverse anonymity and ambiguities again, there is a crying need to reclaim histories of more honorable ambiguities, such as this one. That's it then. That's the end of this episode. We know now how a number of Sufi verses found their way in the holy book of the six. We know now also that the Sikhs and the Muslims, the Sufis, were not so different after all. And the difference, as much as animosity or hostility, is a much recent occurrence. And traditions and languages persist in ways that we don't often understand, traditions of tolerance. Do tell us what you think about History Chatter, this episode, other episodes and episodes that you want us to do, to talk about. Meanwhile, this is your friend Onirban signing off. Do remember to subscribe to History Chatter in Epilogue Media website, GeoSavan, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. See you at the next episode. Bye-bye. <laughs>